0: This podcast is brought to you by BlackBee Ministries International. To find out more, visit BlackBee.org.
1: Well, welcome to the Richard BlackBee Leadership Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by the man whose name is on the podcast. (laughs) The one and only. The one and only (laughs) Richard BlackBee. So good to be with you again, Richard. Oh, thanks. Uh, We do this every once in a while. Mm -hmm. It's the... uh, Leader profile, yeah, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite parts of, of this podcast because you get to kind of dive into history. You look at pull out another biography, pull out another biography. So oh, you're yeah. happy, so everybody's <laughs> happy.
2: Uh, so today, why don't you tell us who we're looking at? Yeah, you know, I, I this is always a fun time for me. I always go over to my biography shelf and decide what what's the next one we'll it's look like, at. It's like and, Christmas every oh, time. Oh, it's wonderful. It's glorious. Um, the uh, uh, I, I decided we'd look at J.P. Morgan today, who's one of our business uh, leaders and, of course, very famous, well-known. Um, and uh, the book I want to base it on is uh, by Ron Chernow called The House of Morgan. It's, uh, okay. it's a great biography. And by the way, I just... You've had some others by Chernow. Yeah, right? we have. We did uh, Titan uh, on, the, on Rockefeller. That's right. That's right. I'm actually reading his book right now on Hamilton that the Broadway play is uh, right, right. is based upon. Chernow himself, I've had i had someone tell me that recently heard him lecture, and he's kind of a stodgy, boring kind of lecturer. I mean, he reads from his manuscript, and you'd think, wow, uh, you know, to hear the guy speak is uh, a little painful. But uh, but his writing style, I, I really enjoy his writing style. It's uh, really well done. These are these are all substantial uh, uh, books. I think you know, right. pushing a thousand or so pages, but. Uh, but very thorough and just has a lot of great little turns of phrases that um, keep it interesting. So I, there, there are certain biographers like Turnell that if you see one, it's like McCullough, uh, who wrote Truman and a couple others like that. That when you see some of those guys, you just you just buy it. You know, yeah. if, he, if there's another biography that he's done, I just get it. Mm-hmm. So all those are good. The Hamilton one that I'm reading right now is very good. I really like the one in Rockefeller as well. I'd really recommend that also. But uh, so this is on um, J.P. Morgan. And of course, we're familiar with the Morgan Bank and Chase. uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah. uh, yeah, And uh, the different Morgans. Uh, He, of course, he is uh, identified as in that the Gilded Age uh, after the Civil War period in American history. Uh, sometimes called the robber barons. Yeah, that's what I was Uh, thinking of. uh, These guys, uh, whether it's uh, Rockefeller or Vanderbilt, uh, a bunch of these guys were building railroads uh, right after the Civil War, particularly there was an explosion across the country, uh, a lot of land being purchased, the stock market, uh, and the the stock exchange all of a sudden is becoming very popular, and uh, a lot of people are beginning to make money at a scale never Imagined before, uh, and Morgan is right there in the midst of it, and he's investing and becomes the most influential banker in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, um, he uh, ninety-six out of the top one hundred companies in America banked with Morgan. <laughs> wow! Uh, when you got ninety-six percent of the top companies in the nation all banking with you. It was the thing to do, and uh, they—I they, think
1: they'd call that a monopoly. Uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs>
2: that was some, uh, monopolies were an issue back in the day uh, because they became so prominent, and everybody wanted to bank with them, and and also just on a personal level, if you were going to invest your money, just your own personal assets, uh, they decided not just to be open to the public at large, but they wanted to be very selective with who could even bank with them. You couldn't oh, really? just, you couldn't just walk in and say, I've just opened up my piggy bank and have $17. I want to start my savings account. Uh, they typically, they, they didn't necessarily advertise this, but there's, their kind of operating rule was, and you got to remember, this is back in the 1800s, 1890s, right. 1880s. Uh, and you, you had to have at least a minimum of $5 million, uh, in your personal, Account for them to open an account for you. So, wow. so if you, it was quite a prestigious thing. If you just, if you went to a party and you mentioned, I got run by the the Morgan Bank uh, to make a deposit. That was that you was were, bragging. Yeah, yeah, you were wealthy. Everybody knew then you were you okay. were well off. They said. Uh, now and then they might stoop to let someone with only $2 million in their savings account bank with them <laughs> just to do it as a favor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, we kind of break our, bend our rules here. You only got 2 million in your checking account. Wow. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll do you a favor. And so, uh, throughout, uh, the, this, this now this book, uh, the turnout rights, isn't just about JP Morgan. It, uh, looks at, uh, uh, a series of people, George Peabody, actually, who's not a Morgan, starts the bank that the Morgans will take over. Junius Morgan is JP's father and tells his story. And then JP, and then it tells about his son, Jack Morgan, and then follows on down the line, just the history of the bank and some of the top leaders, uh, the House of Morgan. So it's not just about JP, but uh, takes you right up into modern times uh, and the influence of that bank and what it did. And, Hmm. uh, and he says that there's probably never going to be someone like JP Morgan or a bank like that again, that can so dominate a country like the United States. But, uh, he had many, many, uh, successes that made him famous. He, they built, uh, their office at 23 wall street, right at the corner of wall street and broad street. And, uh, for years, it, was, it was just a relatively small building. It was not a real a high, a skyscraper or anything, but it uh, was the center of financial power on Wall Street for many mm-hmm. years. And when there are uh, several notable moments, when uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt died, he left his son William a bit over $100 million, making him the wealthiest man in the world. And uh, at that time, though, it just baffled people just in the 1800s to have a hundred million dollars when, when, if you had a hundred thousand dollars, you could be wealthy the rest of your life, never work another day. Uh, and this guy had a hundred million dollars and he actually doubled that money in the next six to eight years. Um, but it, it scared people. They, they, of course, in America, there was a great fear of Kings and right. wealthy people dominating, uh, and, and basically destroying democracy. And so there was this innate fear of very wealthy, powerful people, which still gets played upon even in politics today. For but, sure. Um, and so Vanderbilt ultimately felt that he needed to, instead of running this, uh, Central Railway that where he had much of his wealth, he decided to sell off about 250,000 shares to the public so that it, the public could own it. And that's when the stock market and people all of a sudden thought, oh, I can own some of Vanderbilt's company. Well, Vanderbilt went to JP Morgan to to sell the shares and that kind of helped make his fame. And, and throughout history, Morgan so
1: was that one of the, the first IPOs.
2: Uh, yeah, the I don't early... know if it'd be one of the first, but certainly one of the biggest. Yeah. Uh, and of course it, it that was an existing company that had been run for a while, but had been more of a privately held company. Right. And, and now he's going to open it up to the public. And, uh, and uh, he did several things, for instance, later when, uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie, Decides to sell his uh, steel company to make U.S. Steel. Um, J.P. Morgan uh, handled that purchase and ultimately offers uh, Carnegie four hundred and eighty million dollars, making Carnegie one of the, or if not the, wealthiest person at that time. Interestingly, after he signs the deal, signs, uh, sells his company for for four hundred and eighty million. Later, uh. Carnegie's talking to Morgan and saying, you know, I I, I should have just uh, asked for another $100 million when I sold that to you. And Morgan, not to spare the guy's feelings, said, well, I would have paid it if you'd asked for it. <laughs> and so he realized, oh, I could have had $100 million more. That probably gotta, irked get uh, Carnegie discount. the rest of his life. But uh, <laughs> And there were a couple of times, for instance, in 1907, when there was a... a, a, a financial panic in America, and many, many companies were going bankrupt, people were committing suicide, and uh, it was J.P. Morgan who actually came in and pulled people and resources together to stop the panic, and Mm. uh, he did that again later in life, at least twice in American history when there was a financial run and a crisis where even the U.S. government did not have uh, the resources, it didn't have a, 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 a Federal Reserve at that time, um, and they had to turn to a guy like Morgan to literally uh, save the United States um, and fi- from financial ruin. Uh, he had that kind of power that when everything was falling apart, uh, you turn to him. And he could uh, b- very uh, powerfully and confidently stop the slide and stop the, the mm. destruction. And so in times of crisis, people would look to a guy like him but there were other times where people feared someone with that much power yeah. and there was always a suspicion. And part of what Morgan would do is that he would finance, uh, uh various companies in, in the early days. It was uh, primarily railroads, but he also invested in other kinds of factories and, and companies. And oftentimes he would insist then about uh, on being on uh, the board of that company. Mm. And, uh, And he would, and and so he had enormous influence far beyond just the money that he had himself. Was all the the control he had over so many other companies. He's on the boards of. And of course, then he would uh, he would do whatever he could to help make those companies successful. And if it meant maybe crushing companies that he didn't invest in, uh, and to to uh, develop monopolies and unfair trading advantages. and so uh, he, uh, throughout history, be- just developed some very, very powerful companies. Uh, his, uh, the bank actually began in London. His, uh, uh, J- uh, uh, George Peabody was an American who moved to London and became the biggest American banker in England hmm. and, did a- and was trying to rival the Rothschilds and some of the biggest banks in, in uh, Britain. Uh, and interestingly, when you look at some of these famous people, Uh, they're obviously, they're driven, they're smart, they're gifted, uh, they're visionary, but oftentimes they're also lucky, (laughs) you know, and there's no way around it. You look back and say, well, why did he end up becoming so fabulously successful? And this person over here didn't, uh, it's not always because they had more brains. Uh, George Peabody was a bachelor his whole life and uh, Peabody's an. In In fact, you could base the book Scrooge or Ebenezer Scrooge (laughs) on Peabody. He uh, by the 1850s he was earning around three hundred thousand dollars every year, but he would spend about three thousand. So he, wow, uh, he's he's got of course 1850s three hundred thousand dollars a year. That's uh, a a lot. Goes a long (laughs) way. Yeah, and so he's earning three hundred thousand dollars a year. One of the famous stories is that he was found. He would, but he didn't even take his own uh, coach uh, to uh, to drive around. He would take uh, the bus or the public transport back then. Uh, and, and, at one point he was seen waiting for the public transport to come and someone said, uh, well, I just saw one go by. He said, yeah, that was the two penny, uh, uh bus. I'm, I'm waiting for the other carriage. I'm waiting for the one penny carriage. <laughs> Here's a guy making $300,000 a year wow. and he doesn't want to spend an extra, literally an extra penny on his public transportation. Uh, and so he was a, but he was a bachelor. He had no children. And so, uh, as he's getting older, he realizes, well, I've got to pass this company on to somebody. So he literally looks for an heir, looks for somebody that he can pass this very lucrative company onto. And ultimately, he's he's uh, recommended to Junius Spencer Morgan. And Junius is an American. He's brought over to London. He he he's and he's basically told, if you'll work under me for ten years, I'll I'll let you take over this company and. Uh, and so he, he does, works for him for 10 years. I mean, it's a great, great uh, opportunity. And during that time in 1857, the Crimean War comes to an end and it led to a panic financially. And it, his his bank almost goes bankrupt because of the financial downturn. And what that caused Morgan to do was to, to take a much more conservative approach. He said, I, I want to be, he wanted to have control over, uh, back then, of course, there weren't real sophisticated management uh, techniques and programs and training. And so a lot of companies were just not well run. And Morgan had a great eye to detail and uh, and to uh, cautious uh, investing and approach. And so he would want to be on the board to make sure things were run well. And it, it kind of led to the Morgan approach of saying we'll invest in things that show high promise and are managed well, or we'll, we'll make them manage themselves well. And so Junius, uh, works under Peabody for 10 years and then ultimately is, is given the company. Peabody ends up not giving him nearly as much as he said he would. In fact, Peabody ended up saying, I don't want you to use even my name on the company. You got to change the name of the company. So he changes the name to, to Morgan. Uh, he, he didn't want to because nobody knew Morgan. Yeah. Everybody knew the name of Peabody, but, uh, But kind of famously, he changes that. And and so Junius has a son, J.P. Morgan, and he decides ultimately to have J.P. run the American office. And so he puts him in New York City and says, I'll be based here in London. And you go to New York and try to, in that rough frontier uh, (laughs) uh, country, and you do the American investing there. And that's where J.P. ultimately, for about 33 years, he works under his father. And interesting, his father is actually very concerned about him. He, he's uh, restless. He's uh, irresponsible, at times emotional. And, uh, and so uh, Junius will, for years, have his son J.P. work with a partner that's more older and experienced and calming. Trying to, he kept trying to put a calming influence on his son. And it's interesting, one of the dynamics of the Morgans is that Junius only has one son, a JP. And so he uh, dotes on him and is very controlling of his son, writes him long, long letters, has his son come over every year for about three months to spend with him in London and tries to mentor him, um, invest in him heavily. Then he'll go over to America for a month or two and spend it with his son. And so very controlling, very concerned about his son that, you know, it's interesting, these famous people like J.P. Morgan. And yeah. you, yet you read their father who worried himself sick about his son, whether he'd make it or not. And uh, <laughs> and I, it's almost a domineering kind of thing where when his father finally dies, J.P., uh, Juno was, was, Junius was... Um, sparing in his praise and affirmation it's clear that he loved his son and uh but he was worried about him and just that style that victorian kind of style of you don't openly tell yeah. your son you're proud of him or he's doing a good job you don't you, do the whole feelings you, thing you, yeah you tell him all the stuff you're worried about and uh and then uh J P Morgan kind of did the opposite with his son Jack he also just had one son Jack and uh he was he loved his son as well but he was just kind of too busy for him hmm. and so which is uh, the American way. Yeah, and yeah. he's doing the American way. And so, uh, and so they. in fact, Chernow says that perhaps the Morgan dynasty would have been different if they'd had more than one son. Hmm. But all the pressure goes on that one son. And uh, J.P. had all kinds of nervous issues. He was always stressed and burned out. He always talked about retiring and the strain was too much. In fact, J.P., even at an early age, would take three-month vacations every year. Hmm. which uh, sounds pretty good for a building yeah. the empire he had. He'd go on cruises and be gone for three months. Uh, I think that's a good, a good example. Uh, yeah, and I don't think that that's going to show up in our policy manual anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, but here's a guy that was carried the burden all the time. He becomes fi- fabulously successful in the financial world, and yet turnout uh, demonstrates over and over again how hard it was for him just to enjoy his success. Hmm. He was always stressed, and they feel like a lot of that was the uber kind of responsibility that his father drilled into him yeah, and, uh, and trying to please his father, trying to do a good job. Uh, and so they said he was very, uh, Morgan was very successful, but he didn't really enjoy a success like you might've thought for a guy that was uh, accomplishing the kinds of things that he did. Hmm. Well, let's take a quick break here and we'll be right back.
0: Whether at home, on the job, or in the ministry, we can all have a greater impact on the world around us for the kingdom of God. Join Richard Blackaby at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove to learn about increasing your spiritual influence on April 6th through the 8th, 2020. Space is limited, so register soon at the link in the show notes. If you like what we're doing and would like to support our work, please consider making a donation. Even a little bit will go a long way toward keeping this podcast going for the months and years to come. To support this podcast, click on the link in the show notes. We are truly grateful for our wonderful community of listeners.
1: Well, Richard, uh, I I think our listeners probably know by now that with all of these uh, leader profiles, there's usually a downside. Yeah. There's usually a a dark side, a negative aspect of of what led them to become the men and women that they, they were, and uh, I suspect that J.P. Morgan is no different. No. Especially, it sounds like, with the family dynamics, uh, as you already alluded to. So what were maybe some, some downsides of of uh, J.P. Morgan?
2: You know, he has he has a number of them, and uh, it, it's interesting. For one, uh, like we've already touched on, his father was very domineering yeah. and put a lot of pressure, he would write him long, long letters, uh, g- advising him on uh, how to live his life. And he was always worried that he was, uh, irresponsible and, uh, not in control of his emotions like he ought to be. And so was, uh, always trying to put older mentors around him and, uh, and in, in, investing quite heavily in his son, but, uh, but very much controlling. And, uh, and so that caused all kinds of uh, issues with JP he was mm-hmm. a very nervous wreck was depressed a lot was, uh, would have big bouts of depression. And, uh, he found one of the only ways to deal with it was to go sailing. He, he, he began buying very expensive, very large yachts that he would spend yeah. months at a time on. And, uh, another kind of interesting thing with uh, Morgan was he had this, he was a, a fairly tall man over six feet. Um, but he, but, uh, he was, uh, uh prematurely, uh, bald and he had this what was called a bulbous nose. He had this enormous nose and he had a skin condition that had affected his nose and some of his skin. And it basically, they, they said his nose looked kind of like a cauliflower. It was very, uh, unattractive, Mm -hmm. very big, very noticeable. Uh, they said most of the time when you see a picture of, uh, Morgan in a book or something, it's been touched up. Uh, most most paintings of him and so on yeah. were always cleaned up. The artist but, uh, is a little generous. Yeah. There but there is one, one picture in the book of a kind of a candid shot where someone just took a photo of him and it and it infuriated him because he didn't like people to see his nose as it was and um Wow. And people would stare at him and uh I mean it was the kind of thing where if you just were looking at him you couldn't help but notice. It was very hideous. And so he's always very self conscious of that. Uh, and, uh, it's interesting because some of the most famous people like John Rockefeller had a particular kind of disease as well, which, uh, made him lose his hair early in life. And, uh, and so he was famous for buying all these gaudy wigs all the time. He kind of got into wigs for a <laughs> while and people were never wig, quite knew what face. John Rockefeller would look like, uh, when he showed up. Uh, and it's just one of those kind of, to me in history, it's just kind of interesting, you know, cause you think of these guys that are literally saving the financial uh, status of of the nation of the United States with their power and influence uh, he, he uh, Morgan's the first guy in New York City to have electric lighting in his house uh, and yet he's very self-conscious about his nose yeah <laughs> or Rockefeller with his hair and uh, and you realize these are people made of clay just like everyone else with their fears and uh, their concerns Uh what, what and and there there's always tragedy in people's lives like this um, mm-hmm. he uh, actually fell in love with a woman he'd known for two years when he was just a young man in his 20s still named uh, Mimi and even when and so he decides to marry her kind of spontaneously doing something that his father would have uh, been mortified okay. about but uh, he but his but uh, his uh, fiance is already struggling with terminal tuberculosis. And so she's dying when, when he marries her, but he really loves her. And um, he, he literally had to carry her downstairs from her, f- her parents' home, uh, carry her down the stairs for the wedding ceremony. Hmm. Uh, but, wow. and, and a lot of people, Chernow suggests that that might be the only woman that he ever really loved. And uh, he takes her on a honeymoon to the Mediterranean, hoping that the climate there will help her recover, but she dies four months after their wedding wow. uh, while they're in, uh, I think, in France somewhere. And uh, they, Chernow suggests that he, he never really loved another woman after that. And he kind of says that uh, in one sense, it was a very noble thing for him to do. He's marrying this uh, invalid out of love, and he's tenderly caring for her and doting on her and... Uh, serving her, uh, and he Chernow says there were moments where the Morgans could be very sentimental, uh, very noble, but oftentimes they kind of learned that you you shut those off. Uh, You became the tough, uh, intimidating uh, banker kind of uh, Hmm. persona instead of the caring person doting over a woman dying of tuberculosis. So he ultimately yeah. marries uh, a second wife named that was named Fanny, and turnout uh, basically uh, unpacks the fact that it was never uh, a, a very loving marriage, and ultimately they became quite estranged. They, of course, never divorced, but uh, l- later uh, Morgan would have multiple affairs and the mistresses, and they, they basically lived apart. He would travel to... He, and his escape was always his boat. And so oftentimes he wouldn't even go home. He would go spend the night on his uh, yacht that was often parked just there in Manhattan. Um, yeah. And they said it became his sort of man cave, his escape, where he could kind of do what he wanted to do. And he could uh, bring girlfriends on the boat or he, uh, just friends to that... Uh, he could let his hair down and not just be the formidable banker that he was known for. But, uh, but over and over again, Chernow says he was a very lonely man and, uh, Mm. his partners often would be very intimidated by him. Even partners who'd been partners with him for years in the business would still call him Mr. Morgan. Uh, and, uh, he kept a certain aloofness, a gruffness. Uh, and, uh, once his father dies, his father dies uh, and leaves him about over $12 million. Um, it said, it, uh, Chernow says it kind of took a restraint off of Morgan and he began to, uh, purchase, uh, he, he became a wild art collector. In fact, when he dies, he has one of the most expensive private art collections in America. It was valued mm. at about $50 million when he dies. Uh, and, uh, he begins to build bigger and bigger yachts and to spend more and more time away when he they said when he was fighting depression he uh, sailing at sea was one of the only times where he kind of got away uh from all the responsibility and he, he was always talking about retiring uh and uh he, he just he just seemed like a lonely man that uh but but also you know lucky as well like i said he he uh, uh, basically, the the Morgan Bank was handed to them by yeah. Peabody. You know, it's uh, that was just a stroke of good fortune. But uh, throughout his life, he had a, a several moments. For instance, in the Civil War, he paid three hundred dollars to have someone else go in his place. He would have been drafted to serve in the in the army, but back then, you could actually pay someone to stand in for you. Hmm. So he pays, and of course, he could have easily died on a Civil War battlefield. Uh, but uh, someone else goes instead. And uh, he, he actually, his company helped fund the building of the Titanic. And when they built the Titanic, they actually built a beautiful stateroom for him because he financed it and uh, was uh, a, a very influential with that company yeah. uh, on the board. And so he had a beautifully decorated stateroom and he had reservations to go on the maiden voyage of the Titanic but business got in the way and he had to pull out even though he had probably the nicest cabin in the whole ship. Uh, and so he doesn't sail on that ship. Mm. Uh, yeah. and so he has those kind of moments in his life where he's very fortunate. He has moments where he makes some of the biggest deals with the Vanderbilts and, uh, with the, uh, Carnegie's and, and folks like that. He establishes, uh, uh, a chain of banks in in Paris and London and uh, New York City and Philadelphia and other parts of the, of the country that uh, where he has the, the wealthiest people in the country all uh, wanting to bank with him, seek his advice. Uh, he would go and uh, he became friends with the King of England, in fact gave the King of England a $500,000 uh, tapestry as a coronation gift. Um but at the end of the day, uh, in fact, when he died, his uh, his net worth was kind of surprising. I mean, people were surprised. I think he was worth about $84 million for a guy who's swinging $500 million deals, uh, who's regularly making $100 uh, $1 million commissions on deals. But he spent a lot of money on art, a lot of money on yachts. And it kind of surprised people, actually, that... Uh, he wasn't worth a lot more. Some of the wealthy people like uh, Carnegie said they kind of felt sorry for him when they found out the most famous banker in the world didn't have more money than he had. But uh, a tragic figure. Uh, and he left a son that was uh, Jack that was always insecure because he never knew if his father approved of him either. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, a loveless marriage. Uh, and, and maybe the last thing to say, he had his youngest do- child was a daughter named Anne who uh, was very much like him and ultimately was estranged from him. And again, they said he could pull some of the biggest deals together. He could, he could actually stop a, a, a depression and a financial yeah. run in, on Wall Street single-handedly, and yet he could not uh, be uh, reconciled with his youngest child. And uh, again, just so much that you see in successful leaders in business and politics, uh, very good perhaps in one area of their life, but uh, huge uh, blind spots in others in areas yeah. of weakness. Obviously, because you're good at making money isn't doesn't mean you're good at saving money or good at relationships yeah. or marriages or child rearing. Uh, and, uh, and I guess one of the big questions of history is to be fabulously successful in one field, does it mean you have to neglect others? Do you have to right. go cheap on other areas of, of life so that you can be very successful in yeah. one is area? Is that the, is that the price of success? And so that's a, it's an intriguing, uh, read about someone that continues to leave a mark and a legacy, but, uh, you realize very flawed, uh, and perhaps, an unhappy person, successful in business, but never really finding the mm. happiness that uh, everybody seeks.
1: Well, it's a it's an interesting read and a cautionary tale uh, yeah. for us to look at. And so, always uh, enjoy walking through these uh, halls of history with well, there's you. There's more biographies to come. Oh, Sam. I've seen the show, so <laughs> it's not going to end anytime soon. No. <laughs> Until next time